Um, so that's Romans 1 to 17. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through him and for his name's sake, we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedient to the obedient to the obedience of that comes from faith. And you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called the saints. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's longing to visit Rome. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness. How constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that you now at last, by God's will, the way may be opened for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart some, to you some, some spiritual gifts that make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have, have a harvest among you, just as I have among the other Gentiles. I am obligated both to, greet, to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel, also to you who are at Rome. And I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as is written, the righteousness will live by faith. Uh, let's bow in prayer, and then we'll um, uh, get into this passage. Father in heaven, we want to thank you for uh, Romans chapter 1. We uh, pray, Father God, that as we look at your word now, that uh, you would be opening up our eyes and changing our hearts, helping us to see the gospel with more clarity and uh, to be more passionate in terms of us uh, being prepared and willing to step outside of our comfort zones to share the gospel of Jesus with other people. And uh, we pray also for the um, children in the Sunday school and just ask, Lord God, that they would be really growing as Christians and um, that this time that they have together will be of great benefit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When we think about what people need in life, I guess that there's a few sort of basic needs that all human beings have. Uh, we all need food, we all need water, uh, <clears throat> clothing is pretty helpful. I like the idea of having clean air, oxygen to breathe, don't you? Uh, in fact, without some of those things, we die. Um, <clears throat> and then there's other things, uh, a roof over the, your head, that's pretty important. Um, relationships, uh, friendships, connections with other people. Uh, we may not necessarily die without those things, but 
without them we can lead a pretty miserable sort of a life. And some people say that if those basic needs uh, are met, then other needs can be met as well. People say if you've got all those things in place, you've got a chance of having better self-esteem and self-actualising and being satisfied and fulfilled in life. But we know that that's not quite true, that uh, there is uh, another thing, something else, which is basic to all humanity, common to all humanity, a need which we all have, a greater need, and that need, of course, is that we all need to have a personal relationship with God, with our Creator. Uh, not everyone recognises that we have that need, but many do. Uh, and it's the, the question, the great question, which people have wrestled with um, right down through a, throughout history, uh, the question of how can we have that relationship with God? How can ordinary people frail human beings um, have a relationship with a God who is so great that he created the whole universe, uh, a God who uh, many would say is a holy God, a God who is perfect in every ways. How can this great need of all humanity be met? Now I think it's true to say, and uh, John pointed this out last week, that um, over the last couple of thousand years that there's been a great number of people who've found the answer to that question um, as they've been uh, reading and studying through the book of Romans. Um, some of those are people that have uh, uh, read Romans, they've understood the gospel for the first time, God's grace, and have gone on to become very, very influential people, influencing others for the sake of the gospel. People such as Augustine, um, and uh, Martin Luther. But it's also had that effect on just everyday, ordinary Christians, um, people who've been reading through Romans and have understood God's grace for the first time and how it is that sinful human beings can have a relationship with a holy God. Indeed, I... I I would um, venture to say that this letter that was written by the Apostle Paul is arguably the most influential letter that's ever been written by anybody um, in all of history. Paul wrote it to Christians who were living in the city of Rome. And Rome, of course, in Paul's day was uh, undeniably uh, without... Um, uh, question, the most important city in the world. Uh, in the first century, Rome was the, uh, the great uh, centre of world political power and world commercial power. I don't know if there's a, there is no really modern day equivalent. I suppose if you rolled Washington and New York into one, it would uh, come close to it. But it, it was the greatest city. It was the centre of the empire. Now, we, we don't know how the gospel actually got to Rome. We, we don't know exactly how it got to Rome. We know that it didn't go through the Apostle Paul because Paul uh, did not uh, go to Rome as a place of virgin territory and preach the gospel. We know that. Uh, they say that all roads lead to Rome, don't they? 
and I think that means that uh, uh, Rome was like a hub and uh, the, the best guess is that uh, most likely uh, the gospel came through ordinary Christians, Christians who had, people who'd heard the gospel in other places uh, where the apostles had been and had um, planted churches, but they've, they've relocated to Rome, um, perhaps for business purposes, for career purposes. They found themselves uh, living in Rome and have therefore brought the gospel with them and have um, become a church and, and have uh, reached out to others with the gospel, shared the gospel. In fact, uh, right at the end of Romans, Paul um, gives some extensive personal greetings uh, and he does so to people that he knows uh, them personally who are in the, Ro- in the church in Rome uh, but they're people that he has met through in other places as he's preached the gospel elsewhere, but they are people who've moved to Rome. Nevertheless, uh, many of the Roman Christians had never met Paul. Um, they'd heard about Paul, they knew of him by reputation, uh, but had not met him personally. And so, uh, as Paul commences his letter... Uh, in the first six verses, he wants to introduce himself uh, to the Christians in Rome. I'm going to just read those first through six verses and we'll unpack them and we'll move on to the, uh, uh, what the, uh, the, 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 the crux of what Paul wants to say in, these, in this section of the scriptures. But in verse 1, he says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who, as to his human nature, was a descendant of David and who, through the spirit of holiness, was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, Through him and for his name's sake, we receive grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. Wow. That's not exactly what you'd call a um, shallow introduction, is it? (laughs) It's not light and fluffy. Um, Paul uh, really says some, it's really compact and he says some meaty stuff. Uh, in in that introduction. And I gather that Paul really wants people to know, firstly, who he is, and secondly, what what he's on about, um, the message that he has. See how he describes himself. He describes himself as being a servant of Christ Jesus, or a slave, as the word could equally be translated. Rome was full of servants, it was full of slaves, uh, who were bonded servants. Um, it was a slave society. The whole economy of Rome depended upon slavery. And so it was commonplace for people to be a, a slave or a servant. The important thing is who your master is. The important thing is whose slave is Paul? Who does he belong to? Uh, 
And what we notice here in verse 1 is that he identifies his master, doesn't he? And he identifies his master as being Christ Jesus. Uh, he doesn't say Jesus Christ, as would be also appropriate and does so elsewhere. But he identifies his master as Christ Jesus. You see, Christ is not a surname. Christ is a title. And it means uh, God's anointed one. Um, king. Um, that's who Paul serves. King Jesus. In verses 2 through to 4, he expands on what he means by that, uh, that uh, Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one. And uh, he says there in verse 2, he talks about the gospel, which was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures uh, regarding his son, who was to his human nature was a descendant of David. The Old Testament prophets uh, said that uh, God's king uh, would be a man just like us. He would share our flesh. In fact, that you would be able to trace his descendancy through the, um, uh, through the descendants of, uh, of uh, King David. And, and that, of course, is true of Jesus, isn't it? Who, via his father, via Joseph, uh, is a descendant of King David. But unlike David, after death, the, the body of God's king would not rot away in a grave so that when someone else becomes king, that they would take over. Uh, rather, God's king would rule over God's people forever. And this was what was promised in the prophets. This is what Paul is saying here. Uh, we see an example of that, uh, many examples of the, the prophecies of God's king, but Psalm 16 kind of stands out to me because in, in Psalm 16, King David himself prophesizes about, the, the, about God's coming king uh, by saying that this one would not be abandoned to the grave, uh, that his body would not see decay. Do you remember on the day of Pentecost, Peter preaching to the crowd? That's what he quotes, Psalm 16. He said, well, David wasn't talking about himself because David's dead and buried. David's rotted away. Um, but Peter says David was prophesying about Jesus, whom God has raised from the dead, who has ascended to the right hand of God, the Father in heaven, and Peter says, and has now sent the Holy Spirit. How do we know that Jesus is the Christ? Well, I reckon being raised from the dead and sending the Holy Spirit's a good hint, don't you? <laughs> and that's what Paul is saying here. He talks about the one who was, uh, in regarding his human nature, was a descendant of David. That's what the prophet said. And who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. And so, in verses 1 to 4, Paul is saying, he is the one I serve. Uh, that's my master, King Jesus, pro promised through the pages of the Old Testament. Now, Paul, of course, was Jewish. In fact, Paul was about as Jewish as anyone could get. He was uh, born of the tribe of Benjamin. He was... Um, 
as to legalistic righteousness. He was a Pharisee. Uh, he was, you couldn't get more Jewish than Paul. But what we do know in, in Acts chapter 9, when Paul was converted on the road to Damascus, and he went into Damascus, that God announced that Paul uh, was his chosen instrument to uh, bring the good news about Jesus to the non-Jews of the world, to the Gentiles, of which in the church in Rome uh, there were a good number of uh, people who were not Jewish, who were Gentiles. Have a look at verse 6. Uh, verse 6 he says to them, And you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Uh, now, we see later on in Romans that it appears that the composition of the church in Rome, uh, that there was a good balance of, of Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, that it wasn't just a majority of Gentiles with a minority of Jews or the reverse. Seems to be a lot of Jews and a lot of Gentiles in the Roman church. And in fact... Uh, the book of Romans actually helps us to understand the relationship between um, Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians. But having introduced himself and uh, declared what he's on about, uh, now in verse 7 he announces who this letter is for. Uh, living in the very heart of the empire, uh, these Christians are God's holy people. They're set apart for God's service. Now, as a Jew, um, Paul, writing a letter, would normally wish his readers um, God's peace. But as a Christian Jew, uh, Paul knows that God's peace only comes as a result of God's grace. And so here he, uh, he says to them in verse 7, to all in Rome who are, caught, who are loved by God and called to be saints, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the introduction. It's a bit more elaborate than the kind of ways we introduce our letters, isn't it? You know, I might write a letter and, you know, say, Dear Fiona or Dear Peter. But hey, who writes letters these days? Anyone here actually write letters? Yeah, a few, a few, a, a few, uh, a few lovers of tradition amongst us. I so, say, so, yeah, we write. I write a lot of emails and I receive a lot of, you know, the emails I receive, they just start with saying, hi, Scott, then it's down to business. <laughs> or even better, hey, Scott, then it's down to business. <laughs> and uh, we're not quite as elaborate as they were in the first century. But Paul has now said his dear church, and now in verses 8 to 15, he, he gets into... He gets into things. And it's here in these verses, 8 to 15, that we learn a bit about the relationship between Paul and the church. When Paul wrote this letter, um, he was, uh, it was towards the end of his third, and as it turned out, his final missionary journey. Uh, he had spent the last 10 years of his life doing pioneer missionary work, um, preaching the gospel uh, around the world as he knew it, um, particularly uh, what was called Asia Minor, these days modern-day Turkey, and so 
places where we're familiar with the letters that he wrote to them in, uh, in um, Colossae and Ephesus and so on. And, uh, and also down into, uh, into Macedonia and Greece. That's why we have the letter to Philippians and uh, 1 and 2 Corinthians and so on. And so he's been planting new churches. Now, do you get excited about that? Uh, do you get ex excited these days when you hear of a, uh, a new uh, gospel-centered church which God has, has developed uh, in an area where previously there was none? I get excited about that, don't you? Uh, we ought to get excited about that. Imagine how excited the Christians in other places were when they heard that God's kingdom was now growing in Rome itself, in the very heart of the empire. That's exciting. That would have been tremendously exciting. And indeed, it wouldn't be, uh, it wouldn't be too long uh, before uh, Paul would be able to report that there were uh, Christians uh, actually in Caesar's household. So not only had the gospel reached Rome, but it was right in the very household of of the emperor himself which is fantastic so in verse 8 um, paul wants to thank god for these christians and he thanks god because the news about their faith in jesus has spread um, it's been published people know about what's going on in rome in fact paul has been praying for them he says that he's been praying for them constantly uh, without ceasing uh, by the way when we tell someone that we are praying for them it's a good idea that we actually are praying for them don't you reckon uh, sometimes i find you know people come to me and they share something with me and i say to them i'll pray for you about that and i think okay i'm committed to that now uh, I don't promise to pray for someone and then just not pray for them. Um, Paul wants these Christians in Rome to really know uh, with great seriousness that he is indeed praying for them. He says, as God is my witness, as God is my witness, I pray for you. See, I don't know whether he's praying for them or not apart from his word. And he really wants to emphasize the seriousness upon which he places his prayers for them. As God is my witness, he says in verse 9, I constantly remember you in my prayers. That's a great example, actually, isn't it? Of prayer, uh, of being committed to prayer. Are we committed to prayer like that? If I was to ask you to... Uh, tell me who the people are who you are constantly praying for. Um, how would you go? Um, would you be able to say, yes, there are people who I'm constantly praying for, people I'm praying for all the time? And how valuable is it to be praying for people who we're not geographically close to? Uh, sometimes that's the only thing we can do to help them. And it's a very powerful thing to do as Paul had been praying for the Christians in Rome. And there's no doubt that Paul would have prayed for 
pretty intensely for their spiritual growth, for their knowledge and understanding of the gospel and that they would be growing in the knowledge and love of God and putting that into practice. But here, uh, there is something else which he is praying for. And we see it in verse 10, don't we? He says, in my And I pray that now at last, by God's, by God's will, the way may be opened for me to come to you. He's praying that God would open up an opportunity for him to visit them in Rome. So he hasn't been there yet. And it's possible that some of the Christians in Rome might have thought, well, I wonder why Paul has never visited us. I mean, um, he visits other churches. Why is he avoiding Rome for some reason? And uh, in verse 13, he wants to correct that um, possible misunderstanding. He wants them to know about uh, visits which he had previously planned, but which had been prevented. Uh, perhaps because God had opened up opportunities for him to do some frontline pioneer gospel work in other places um, when we get to the back of romans in chapter 15 paul explains something about his ministry priorities uh, and that is that he prioritizes going to places where the gospel is not known uh, he his passion his commitment is for frontier pioneer gospel ministry uh, but now, at long last, uh, he sees that there's a possibility of him actually being able to come to Rome. And he's hoping to be able to do that. He's praying for that. Uh, again, in chapter 15, he explains what his plan is. Um, Paul wrote this letter from Greece. And uh, what he's planning to do is to travel uh, from Greece eastward all the way back to Jerusalem and his purpose in that is that there's been a famine in Judea and Paul has been collecting money from uh, the Gentile churches in Macedonia and in Greece and he wants to take that money back and give it to the to the Christians in Judea and Jerusalem it's a great thing, actually, because these are Gentile Christians blessing uh, Jewish Christians. So he's in Greece. He wants to travel all the way back to uh, Jerusalem. Once he's delivered the money there, he wants to turn back and head westward again. And this time to head further west with the gospel than what he has ever been. He wants to uh, break into some virgin territory by taking the gospel to the Spanish people, to Spain. And if you know your map, Italy is nicely, conveniently located uh, between the Middle East and Spain. And so he sees an opportunity for him to, uh, to spend some time in Rome en route to Spain. And what he says here uh, is that um, uh, he, uh, he, he would want to go to, to, uh, uh, to them in Rome uh, so that um, 
he would have the opportunity in verse 11, have a look at verse 11, he says, I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong, that is that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. He longed to see them. And his goal in wanting to see them was so that he could strengthen them in their faith, teach them the Bible, teach them more of the gospel, help them to understand more of God's grace. But he knows that encouragement is a two-way street. And he knows that he's not the only one who's going to encourage, that he would be encouraged by them as well. Uh, encouragement which would prove to be, which he would hope would be very valuable as he uh, then proceeded to Spain. He never got to Spain though, did he? Because uh, what happened when Paul went to Jerusalem, his enemies had him arrested. And uh, though he didn't get to Spain, he did get to Rome. You see, his prayer to visit Rome was answered, but not in the way that he had planned. Uh, he found himself in Rome on trial for his life before Caesar. But in the process of... So what he's doing in writing Romans is he's preparing them for his potential visit to Rome. Glad he did, because in the process he's written the um, most profound explanation of the gospel uh, that exists. Now, when I was in school, in high school, because of the part of Sydney I grew up in, uh, most of my friends were Greeks. I was kind of like, was spot the Aussie in my school. And uh, Greeks are lovely people. They're very enthusiastic, very encouraging. Uh, <clears throat> when we have our school reunions, they all think that I'm a priest. And they, uh, they, they jokingly come and ask me, Scott, can you absolve me of all of those sins I committed against you when we were in high school? <laughs> and I say, sorry, with you, friend, there's too many. I can't do that. <laughs> uh, one of my Greek friends from high school, though, is an evangelical Christian, lovely guy, and uh, we shared with him here in church with his wife a few months ago. I had a good time of fellowship with him. He's got the best Greek name you could possibly have. Hercules. How's that, eh? True Greek. True Greek. Greeks, Greeks are very... Um, a little bit on the proud side of being Greek, you might say. <laughs> My friends at school would say to me this. They divide the world up into two, two categories of people. They say there's only two types of people in the world, Scott. There's those who are Greeks and those who want to be Greeks. I mean, who wouldn't want to be a Greek? <laughs> well, you see, Paul here... Uh, in verse 14, he talks about Greeks and non-Greeks. Have a look at verse 14. Uh, in explaining to the Romans his desire to be with them, he says, I'm obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, the ancient world was dominated politically and militarily by Rome, that's for sure. But in terms of culture and language, it was Greek that dominated. 
Um, people, um, it, was, uh, it was because of the, um, the history and a big imp in part of that was the conquest uh, uh, by um, Alexander the Great that Greek uh, culture and Greek language spread throughout the ancient world. Um, most people spoke, a lot of people spoke, spoke Greek. Uh, the New Testament was written in Greek. In fact, when Paul writes this letter to the Christians in Rome, he doesn't write it in Latin, he writes it in Greek because it was Greek language, Greek culture, uh, which was, was dominant. And so he says here, I am obligated both to Greeks and to non-Greeks. The word which Paul uses for non-Greeks, it's actually the word barbarian. If you might see that if you're using an ESV translation on your uh, phone or whatever. It's the word barbarian. And when I think of barbarians, I think of people who are not very civilised, don't you? And when we th think about an, a barbaric act, that's kind of like an inhuman act that someone's um, done to somebody else. But that's not the way it was used in the ancient world. Um, it didn't mean uncivilised. Barbarian meant that they, they didn't speak Greek. They spoke another language. It's like, you know, some words in English where the actual word is... The word for a sound is the sound itself. What, what sound do sheep make? They, they do a, a bar, don't they? That's, that's, that's that kind of thing. And people would say, if you, those people who don't speak Greek, they're going bar, bar, bar. Um, and that's where you get the word barbarian from. But it, it's not actually a derogatory term. Um, it's saying that they're, they're not part of the whole Greek language and culture thing. Paul is saying to the Romans, don't misunderstand, I've not avoided you. I may be here in Greece, but I'm committed to all people. I'm committed to people who are culturally Greek. I'm committed to those who are from other cultures as well, the barbarians. I'm committed to the wise and I'm committed to the foolish says Paul. He's not implying that the Romans are foolish, but he's saying I'm committed to all strata of society. I don't care who I preach to. I don't care where they come from, what race they are, what language they speak, what food they eat. I don't care where they stand in the pecking order, how wise they've been or how foolish in their lives. I don't care about those things. For there is one need which is common to all of humanity to be saved from the judgment of God and be reconciled to him forever. In the Roman Empire, the same word for gospel was also used uh, for the announcement of important things regarding the emperor. Like if the emperor's wife had a baby son, an heir to the throne, that was a gospel message. That was good news that needed to be proclaimed. Or if that son grew up and he became the emperor, that would be proclaimed. That would be a gospel 
um, that would be good news, the evangel. By contrast, the message about a crucified Jew may not seem so flash. But in verses 16 and 17, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. He's not ashamed of his gospel, of his good news. Because it's not about a sinful emperor in a temporal kingdom who dies and who rots in the ground and passes on to another emperor. No, it's about a perfectly righteous king in the line of David who by his death for us has satisfied God's righteousness, has satisfied God's justice. It's about a king who's been raised from the dead so that all who put their faith in him can be forgiven and declared to be righteous in God's sight. See what he says in verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of who? Of everyone. Of everyone, no matter who they are. Of everyone who puts their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who trusts in what he's done. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, says Paul, a righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness. God reveals his righteousness in the person of his son, Jesus. He reveals how righteous he is, that his justice is satisfied on the cross. And this is a righteousness that can be given to us. It comes not because of how good we are or who we are or what race we come from. It comes purely by faith, by trusting in what he has done for us. It's always been faith. It's faith from first to last. And there he quotes from Habakkuk saying that the righteous will live by faith. Now last week John challenged us to put our faith in Jesus, didn't he? Have you done that? You're trusting in this wonderful king who has risen from the dead. Today, we are also challenged to have the same attitude towards other people as Paul had. How do we view non-Christian people? Do we truly believe that all people have a need, a need to be saved? Are we willing, like Paul, to love people who are not like us? To move beyond our comfort zone, to meet with and to speak to, to love and to share the gospel with people of different races, of different economic backgrounds, of different social backgrounds, of different ages? Or do we just prefer to stick with people who are identical to ourselves? Paul would share the gospel with anyone because it is the power of salvation for anyone who believes. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your great wisdom in sending your Son, Jesus, the one who is perfectly righteous and who by his death on the cross has been the perfect sacrifice for sin. And through his death we see your righteousness revealed, that uh, you don't sweep sin under the carpet, that you deal with it. And we thank you that because of that, that we can now be seen by you as being righteous in your sight. Oh Lord, give us a heart for other people. Give us a passion which drives us so that we would be prepared to speak with anyone about the Lord Jesus Christ. Use us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.